History happened everywhere. A random place, a random time, and a topic pulled from the hat. The challenge is to find the fascinating, uncover the unexpected, and share the stories. You're listening to... History happened everywhere. My name is Pete Goddard and I'm here in the HHE studio with the book to my hair. It's Mr. Ryan Weir. The book to my hair. We're going to go and rob people. Rob graves, ideally. They're yeah. the easiest people to steal from, in my experience. They very <laughs> rarely chase after you. I didn't know anything about Burkina Faso, so I just went with the Burke part. Oh, right. <laughs> that was good. Right, last week the Dursleter gave us fear in Burkina Faso a long, long time ago. Yeah, it did. So, Ryan, I'm ready to be Burkina Fascinated. Oh, I love that. That's very good. There you go. Yeah, okay. Well, look, on this terrifying episode of HHE, we're going to go deep into the wilds of West Africa. We're going to find out why lions don't fear humans. And we're going to find out why humans don't fear crocodiles. We're going to learn the horrifying truth behind river blindness. We're going to dive deep into the abyss to meet the Defara demon. We're going to reveal why God isn't as scary as your great-great-grandparents and trace back the origins of a scary rock to a long, long time ago. Welcome to the land of the honest people. Welcome to Burkina Faso. So, Peter, Yam Kabire. Oh, indeed, yes. Yam Kabire to you too, (laughs) probably. (laughs) (laughs) Well, if you asked me Yam Kabire, I would say Lafibala. Ah, Lafibala. Lafibala, I'm fine. That's how we would greet each other. If we were Burkina Fasans. Burkinabi. Oh, Burkinabi, that's the word, is it? Yeah, it is, yeah. So look, Burkina Faso, where is it, Pete? It's in Africa. It is in Africa. It is in the centre of West Africa. I think almost everyone knows where Africa is. Just go to the west bit, the bit that sticks out, and in the very centre of that, that's where you're going to find Burkina Faso. It is landlocked. Ah. It's very small. It is surrounded by a number of countries. So starting at the top, you've got Mali. Then you're going clockwise. You've got Niger, Benin, Togo, Ghana, and the Ivory Coast. Geographically speaking, it's split into two. The north is sort of dry and arid, and the south is more lush and foresty. Gotcha. It's the hottest country in the world. Oh, really? Yeah, it has an average yearly temperature of 28 degrees Celsius. That's 82 degrees Fahrenheit. Overall, the land is mainly flat savanna or grassland with sort of scattered trees. So your classic sort of red view that you have of Africa, red ground and a few trees here and there. That's kind of pretty much Burkina Faso. Water, as you might expect, is scarce. There are rivers and streams, but these really only exist during sort of the rainy season, which is May to October. And there are three main rivers. There is the Black, White and the Red Volta. Uh, All three flow directly into Lake Volta, which is in Ghana, and it is the largest artificial reservoir in the world. Wow. Uh, the three rivers gave rise to the country's previous names, Horta Volta and Upper Volta. Ah, that's right. Burkina Faso only recently became Burkina Faso. It was for a long time Upper Volta, or indeed French Upper Volta, which may give you an indication of where we <laughs> might go somewhere in the history of this. Uh, Burkina Faso, I'm sure you want to know how big is it, right? In relation to France, ideally. Well, it is 274,000 square kilometres. That's 105,000 square miles. So about the same size as half of France. Half of France, interesting. Yeah. The capital is Ouagadougou. Ah, Ouagadougou. It's a brilliant name. And this is a 
country full of great names. Uh, Wagadugu, translated, literally means you are welcome here at home with us. Ah, oh, lovely. Other cities and town names include Garum Garum, Barum Barum, and also Rambo. Rambo, nice. Who wants, doesn't want to live in Rambo? <laughs> uh, the main export of the country is gold, followed by cotton, which is known as white gold by the local farmers. In fact, Burkina Faso is one of the largest producers of cotton in Africa, 90% of which is grown from genetically modified biotech seeds provided by the Monsanto Company, who are strong arming, uh, sorry, partnering with uh, the local <laughs> farmers to achieve this nightmare, sorry, wondrous achievement. <laughs> I'm getting flashbacks of the banana growers from the Columbia episode at this point. <laughs> Monsanto, as a company, have been accused on a number of different human rights and environmental violations, including sort of damaging the environment, creating defective crop systems, locking farmers into using only their products, contributing to the disappearance of bees. You know, only a few small minor things. That might not go in. I know. I feel a lawyer's letter <laughs> landing on our desk even as we speak. <laughs> However, recently, one of the largest manganese reserves in the world has been found in the northeast of Burkina Faso, which could quickly become the country's most valuable resource. But let's talk about the people, Pete. We always love the people. Citizens of Burkina Faso are known as Burkinabe. Uh, there's about 16 million of them, and they are split between 66 distinct ethnic groups. Wow. It's a lot of different We're people. Quite a small country as well. Right? All, all mixed together. The dominant group, making up 40% of the population, are the Mose, but others include the Bobo, the Gurunzi, the Lobi, the Mande, the Senufo, and the Fulani. 90% of all the people live in more than 8,000 villages, and there are even still, to this day, nomadic tribes up in the north. Oh wow, so it's still quite rural then, not a highly developed country. Exactly, yeah. In terms of employment, 80% of those 16 million rely on subsistence farming to survive. That means that everything they farm is just enough to feed themselves and their family, with almost nothing, if anything, to sell or trade after that. In fact, most Burkinabi survive on just $3 or £2.50 a day. Despite the poverty, a Burkina Faso has the ninth highest fertility rate in the world, an average of six children per woman. Somebody has to farm that subsistence farm, don't they, I suppose? Um, Burkina Faso is home to the largest elephant population in West Africa. Oh, wow. There's also lions, hyenas, aardvarks, cheetahs, chimpanzees, buffalo, gazelles, crocodiles, and many, many more. Sounds great. Yeah. Sounds like quite the safari adventure. I'm surprised they don't have more tourism. It really is, yeah. And animals are very important to the people uh, of Burkina Faso. Uh, the national animal, in fact, is the horse specifically the white stallion. And that's because the Burkinabi love horses. They are known as the cowboys of West Africa um, because they're always sort of riding their horses around everywhere. Indigenous people use the horses as a mode of transport, but they're also kind of considered their best friend and colleague as well. I could use a horse for a new best friend. Uh, the flag of Burkina Faso. It's horizontally striped, mm -hmm. red on top, green underneath, with a little central yellow star. Very simple. The national anthem is called the Anthem of Victory, and it was written by one of their most famous sons, a guy we're going to come back to later, a guy called Thomas Sankara. Do you want to hear it? I do. Here we go. It has the sound of national anthems, doesn't it? Yeah. I'm waiting for the for the bridge. <laughs> Wait for the drop. It's quite cheery, I think. I'm hoping for a rousing crescendo to finish. 
this feels more like the opening to a western. I like this bit. At this point, I'm beginning to think I could write a national anthem. <laughs> I think I've got the essence of them now in my mind. Oh, yeah! Burkina Faso. <laughs> Faso facts! <laughs> Faso facts! Faso facts. You like that? me. <laughs> I was so pleased when I wrote the words Faso facts. <laughs> the Burkinabi like drinking, Pete. Hooray! <laughs> yeah, an average Burkinabi consumes around seven litres of pure alcohol every year. Wow. Yeah, which is just slightly more than the average American who drinks 6.2 litres of pure alcohol a year. I mean, I'm assuming they're not literally drinking pure alcohol. That is uh, just a measure. A measure of how yeah. much alcohol they're drinking <laughs> in a year. Yeah. necking <laughs> litres of pure spirit. <laughs> no. Uh, but it is three litres less than the average British citizen. Yes. <laughs> who consumes <laughs> about 10 litres a year. Yeah, we've got a problem. <laughs> <laughs> uh, the Bakanabi are famous for making ornate masks. The Bobo people wear large butterfly masks, which reminds me of like a little girl's birthday party. <laughs> um, and the Mose make antelope masks that can be as big as seven feet tall. Wow. That sounds heavy, if you ask me. It does sound like a lot of neck work. Yeah. <laughs> Talking of the Mose, they have this elaborate greeting. They shake hands. They ask how each other are, which is reasonable. Fine. They also ask how their wives and children are doing, how their animals are doing, how their home is doing. And they keep going for a long time. <laughs> In some cases, this sort of back and forth handshake can take over half an hour. Oh, my Lord. Just checking in, seeing how things are going. How many of them see each other coming on the street and go, oh, I haven't got that kind of time. I'm just going to dart behind <laughs> so, this alley for a so bit. Busy. <laughs> <laughs> well, it, does, it, it, it goes on from there. It doesn't stop. <laughs> it's just that. So when meeting someone of equal status, you would respect the other by standing and shaking hands. Then while still shaking hands, you both start to crouch down low and sit on your heels. Okay. I mean, this sounds like a workout as well as a greeting, but okay. Right. But if one is lower in status, they would show respect to the other by going even further, lying down on the ground and sometimes... <laughs> and sometimes... I'm not lying on the ground to shake your hand, Ryan. If that's where this is headed, which I think it is. And sometimes even throwing dirt on their face. Oh my Lord. That feels like a long way to go about saying, hi, how are you doing? <laughs> well, it's all about respect. Anyway, it, it is all about respect. But then they also have this other weird custom. So there is this thing called rakire, and it's the name of a type of joking between people that is, I guess, best described as rude and impertinent. Is this like a roast? Yeah, kind of. I'll give you an example. So like within a family, a grandson might meet his grandmother and say, are you still alive, grandmother? When are you dying? Hey, I might try that on my grandmother next time, won't I? <laughs> and she can't be offended by that. So she might just respond with, naughty boy, I will survive you. Hey, right, zinger, that's, right back. It's a good example. You've been zung. That's a good example of a rakiri. So between ethnic groups, uh, one might say, you are my slave, you rice eater. <laughs> <laughs> I am not going to try that one out in the streets of Croydon. I've got to be honest with you. Anyway, look, the jokes are insulting, but it actually is a means to avoid conflict by causing both people to remember that the other is not the enemy, right? Basically, it's a sort of a symbolic war to avoid an actual real one. So it's 
quite clever in that way. Yeah, and um, we do that, don't we? Amongst friends, you abuse each other, and it's a sort of sign of acceptance as well, isn't it? That's right. You wouldn't tend to abuse someone you actually didn't like. <laughs> right. And the Birkenabi believe that, you know, we all sit down and eat at the same table, so we're all kind of the same. So don't think that you're better or, or worse than anyone else. We're all the same. I'll bear that in mind when I'm groveling in the dust, shaking your hand, throwing mud into my face. <laughs> <laughs> uh, there is even an organisation called the Association for the Promotion of Cross-Ethnic Joking, which promotes Rikiri joking and joke-telling. Uh, there are three national days a year, in fact, focused just directly on Rikiri jokes. Wow, that's a lot of support for a very specific cultural yeah. phenomenon. I feel like I would spend much of my time, as you've described, sort of hiding down back alleys and keeping away from everyone. It feels like, uh, I mean, I wonder how a Zoom meeting starts. <laughs> <laughs> Neville has joined the meeting. Oh, hi, Neville. Hi, John. How are you? Yeah, good, thanks. And your wife? Yeah, yeah, no, all good. And your mother? Oh, yeah, no, she's fine. How about your father? Yep, 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 no, he's good. And the house? Oh, yeah, no, that's great, yeah. And your horse? Oh, no, yeah, I mean, he's fantastic, yeah. Sandra has joined the meeting. Hi, Sandra. Hi, Sandra. Hi, guys. How are you, Sandra? Good, thanks. And your husband? Oh, he's great. And how are the kids? Yeah, no, they're good, too. And your father? Oh, yeah, no, he's fine. Right, and the house? Oh, yeah, that's lovely. And the horse? Yeah, yeah, no, doing well. Okay, that's great. Well, uh, shall we start? Well, actually, John, I did forward the invite to Barry. Oh, uh... Barry has joined the meeting. Hi, Barry. Hi, John. Hi, Barry. Hi, Barry. Hi, guys. Okay, um, how are you doing, Barry? Oh, yeah, yeah, doing well, thank you. And your partner? Oh, yeah, no, she's great. And your mother? Yeah, my mum, yeah, no, she's great. Your father? Yeah, dad's good. The house? Yeah, no, the fine. Horse. Yeah, yeah, no, doing chickens? Good. Oh, yeah, no, great, thanks for asking. Right, let's start with agenda item one. Wait, no one's asked John. John, how are you doing? Yeah, I'm good, thanks. And your wife? Yep, good. And your mother? Fine. And your father? Yep, he's fine. The house and the horse are both fine. Great. So, can we begin? Sure. Right. Agenda item one. How do we bring more efficiency to our operations? Neville, what do you think? Oh, I don't know. I, I can't think of anything. Sandra, any ideas? I don't know. It it's just quite tricky, isn't it? John, uh, perhaps we could bring Bob into this. He'll have some ideas. Oh, uh, well, um... And Keith. Yeah, Keith is a good shout. I, I could ping Toby, too. Bob has joined the meeting. Hi, Bob. How's the wife? Tina has joined the meeting. Hi, Tina. Keith has joined the meeting. Toby has joined the meeting. Arthur. Oh, Okay, famous people of Burkina Faso, uh, Bertrand Truroré. Sounds, rings a bell, but I couldn't really tell you who that was. International soccer star. Oh, okay. So uh, most recently, he played as an attacking midfielder for Aston Villa Football Club here in the UK. But as of the 22nd of August 2022, this year, he was loaned to Turkish club Istanbul Başakşehir. Then you've got Sheikh Iron Bibi Sanu. Oh, yeah, I love uh, Iron Bibi. You know Iron Bibby? No, I don't. He is coined the strongest man in the world. Oh, wow. Cool. Yeah. In 2021, Iron Bibby broke the log lift world record, lifting a 229 kilogram log over his head. Uh, that's about the weight of a male grizzly bear. Okay, so now I'm back 
in the dust, throwing dust into my face. I'm happy with that. Sorry, mate. And I will not be attempting any Rikiri joking with him. He said that uh, in an interview, he'll never press 230 kilograms ever again. Uh, but then later in 2022, he re-entered the competition to defend the title, uh, but actually had to withdraw later due to travel issues. So perhaps he's remembered that interview and gone, ah. Oh. <laughs> anyway, there you go. That's uh, Burkina Faso. Burkina Faso. Thank you. Do you want to know some history? I do. All right, let's do it. Sixteen thousand years ago, <laughs> early man's there. He's settling in the area. He's using prehistoric tools. He's building simple structures. He's starting farms. He's making ceramics. He's doing chisels and arrowheads and all the it's early classic man early man stuff, stuff isn't it? <laughs> yeah. Never do we find them making a t-shirt shop. Yeah. Or... <laughs> DJing. <laughs> 5,000 years ago, the Lobi, the Bobo, and the Gurunzi peoples arrive, and they are starting to really settle down, and they're starting to actually farm. 2,500 years ago, the Iron Age begins. Now, over this period, we see the arrival in a series of waves of warrior tribes on horseback, notably the Mose. Several kingdoms are established. You've got the Gumanche in the east, the Fulbe and Tureg in the north, and then the Mose in the centre. Now, it's there that's most important because it's the Mose who develop most rapidly, and they use their horses to terrorise the neighbouring tribes. They advance as far as Niger and attack Timbuktu in Mali. They are ruled by kings known as Moronaba, which means Great Lord, and the most powerful Mose base is established in Ouagadougou, which is today's capital city. Well, if you've got to have horses, you might as well tromp around and stampede your enemies. Well, they sure do that, and they are genuinely feared by all the countries. Europeans start to arrive at this point, and they claim parts of the region through fighting the local people, making alliances and treaties. And it's worth calling out that a French expeditionary, Paul Volet, uh, was notable for chopping off the heads of local people, putting their heads on poles, roasting children over fires, and stringing up soldiers alive at a height where their feet could be reached by hyenas' hungry jaws. Oh. Uh, he was so... We come in peace, he probably opened with. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he was so bad that when his superiors tried to rein him in, he told his troops that he was no longer French, but a black chief and was going to start his own empire. So clearly he was starting to lose his mind. Uh, Voulet was eventually killed and the French simply marked his activities down to the maddening heat of Africa. I mean, that's not really closure for everyone, is it? But there we go, I suppose. Was he the, the origin of the guy in Heart of Darkness or was that someone else? That's exactly right. Yeah, uh, Apocalypse clips now for the more movie inclined for yes. the more movie inclined <laughs> <laughs> yeah uh, what was his name Colonel Kurtz yes yeah, I was thinking Sanders <laughs> 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 anyway, Voulet and his other French friends, their, their efforts worked uh, because in 1896, the French now take control of the region. Two years later, 1898, the country's borders are drawn up on a map and rules are set out for the local people to follow. Uh, that takes us into roughly the early 20th century. We see some draftees being conscripted to fight in World War One, and this causes an armed opposition to sort of rise up uh, against the French government. And the two-year Volta-Barney War begins. 20,000 locals fight the French army, but are ultimately defeated and their leaders executed. Uh, in 1932, the map is redrawn again. And uh, this time, the region is entirely absorbed into other French colonies. They just go, let's just not have this place and let's just merge it in with all the other countries wow. that, that we, we're currently looking after. <laughs> it's in very big inverted commas. <laughs> yeah. So that's Ivory Coast, Sudan and Niger. So it disappears into, off the map. 
until 1947, when it reappears again, and it's called French Upper Volta. A decade later, 1950s, the colony becomes self-governing and renames itself as the Republic of Upper Volta. In 1960, they gain independence, but the new government lasts only six years until a military coup occurs and the army takes over. This leads to a series of coups until 1984, when a bunch of infighting leads to the appointment of one Thomas Sankara as prime minister. Now, Sankara was a young, energetic and charismatic revolutionary. He was inspired by Marxist philosophy. Uh, he changed the name of the country from Upper Volta to Burkina Faso. Aha. He campaigned against corruption. He cut his salary and that of all of his top civil servants, even making them sell off their big luxury cars for smaller, more affordable ones. He oversaw huge increases in education and health spending. He promoted pan-Africanism, self-sufficiency, and he was also outspoken on gender equality, banning female circumcision, polygamy, other such issues. He sounds awesome. He was a pretty awesome guy. Uh, in fact, he gained the hearts of the people. He was quickly known as Africa's Che Guevara after the uh, guerrilla leader and revolutionary from Cuba. Yeah, but he didn't end well. Well, on that. <laughs> <laughs> it all felt too good to be true, didn't it? <laughs> yeah. Uh, only four years into his leadership, Sankara is meeting with his advisors when a car pulls up outside the building, shots are fired. So Sankara grabs his gun, tells everyone to stay in the room and leaves to confront the attackers. As he leaves the room, he's shot seven times in the chest and then twice in the head as he's lying on the floor and he dies immediately. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Many believe that Sankara was assassinated by his friend, no less, by Blake. Compaeri, a man who then replaces Sankara and takes over as leader of the country for the next 27 years. And in fact, in 2014, protests break out and the parliament building is set on fire and Compaeri resigns and flees. He runs to the Ivory Coast where he remains in hiding to this day. Uh, side note, in April of this year, 2022, Compaori was put on trial for his role in the assassination of Sankara. Oh, wow. He was found guilty and received a life sentence in absentia, uh, which means that despite the verdict, you know, you never actually still live in Ivory time. Coast and probably won't get a visa anytime soon. No, it's unlikely. And uh, it does mean that it can give some peace to Sankara's family as well. They feel like some justice has been done. Anyway, uh, after Kampaori abandoned the country, President Kabori is sworn in. He lasts for seven years until January 2022, uh, when he's arrested in a military coup. Oh dear. Yeah. In March this year, an agreement was reached that the military would then oversee a three-year transition to be followed by new elections. So as we speak currently, the military are in charge. And in April, ex-president Kabori was released by the military. In 2022, Burkina Faso is a place of unrest. I think it's fair to say there is a high risk of terrorist attacks, kidnappings. The UK Foreign Office in particular has deemed Burkina Faso one of 17 countries entirely unsafe for tourists to visit. Oh, it feels like a missed opportunity from Sankara to this. So we've been in these situations before where there's been a lot of periodic overthrowing of government and oftentimes neighbours are heavily involved. Is there a sense of factions supporting different sides of it, neighbours trying to get involved or is it just all internal upheaval? No, it seems to be mainly internal upheaval. They seem to kind of just sort of be left alone with it. Yeah, I suppose it's one of those self-fulfilling prophecies. As soon as somebody overthrows someone in a coup, people think, oh, you can do a coup. <laughs> and suddenly coups become a lot more likely, don't they? We've, we've seen before, I think, I can't remember where, but there's that important moment for any nation that's kind of going through these kind of upheavals where they get their first peaceful transfer of power between different sides of, the, of a democratic election. And once you have one of those, you start to see a bit of hope coming 
coming in. So hopefully they'll have some of that soon. That's what we're hoping for. Anyway, that's the history. That was a bit sad. It is sad because it really does seem like they are a fantastic group of people. I really do hope that that this all resolves itself at some point. But hope they get the government at, they deserve. Looking at the history of it, it's it's not been great. So fingers crossed for you. All right. Hang in there, guys. Bessios has birds in a cage, but our country can produce all the food it needs to live a decent life. But we have to decolonize ourselves from the imperialist mentality that wants us egotistic slaves, mere zombies who line up just to consume and mimic foreign lifestyles. They want us competitive. Which means throwing another human being into the mud just to feed the ego. A society like this brings violence, ignorance and makes beasts of men. Cooperation rather is the law of nature. Because real freedom can only be obtained through struggle and sacrifice. The man wants to eradicate it from a native country with no identity, no belongings, no idealism. The slave alone is responsible for his own misfortune. If he harbors the illusion of the generosity of a master to set him free. So, Peter. Yes, Ryan. Fear. What is fear? Fear is a word which describes being afraid of something, associated with sort of anxiety, usually caused by danger, pain, sort of the threat of being harmed, that sort of thing. Biologically speaking, fear is an evolutionary tool. Uh, it's developed through learning, uh, which gives a sort of like a warning signal when injury or death appears to be close. You learn if you fall off a tall rock, it really hurts when you hit the bottom. So the next time you come up to that tall rock, you might keep a little further away from it, right? Because that instinct kicks in, the fear kicks in. You think, oh, I remember there's a horrible thing that might happen around here. It's designed to sort of help us avoid those dangerous situations or at least respond to it. You might have heard of fight or flight. Yeah, I'm a flight man myself. Are you? <laughs> Very much so. <laughs> or it can even cause temporary paralysis. You can be that afraid. A deer in the headlights, you know, that sort of thing. It can be both rational or irrational. Yeah. A rational fear being stumbling into the path of a hungry grizzly bear. That is very rational and one of my many fears. And then there are irrational fears. Uh, can you think of any particular ones? Well, in the UK, fear of spiders could be argued to be irrational. There you go, because non-venomous, not, not harmful to humans. Uh, that is arachnophobia, fear of spiders. Another one might be acrophobia, fear of heights. Uh, another one might be uh, arachibuturophobia. Yeah, that's the fear of um, spiders in your butter. Whoa, that's so close. It's fear of peanut butter sticking to the roof of your mouth. <laughs> and then there's nomophobia, which I think both me and you and a lot of our listeners will probably respond to. That is the fear of not having your smartphone on you. Oh. That thing of, oh, where is it? What if I do? Where would I leave it? But yeah, nomophobia. There you go. So let's talk less about fear and more about... A long, long time ago I can still remember how that music used to make me smile <laughs> yeah yes okay that uh, was my first thought when it came up actually in that tune exactly i i suspect that that's maybe where where the does later got it from but uh, that was don mclean's song american pie it starts with a long long time ago 
And then there's loads of stuff. You, I thought you were going to jump in with the next I, one. But... I can't remember most of it. Anyway, it's a phrase a long, long time ago. It basically just describes something which happened far in the past, right? Not at all recently. But the thing is, Pete, a long, long time ago is subjective. It depends on who is saying it and who is listening to it and what they might refer that to. So for me, a long, long time ago might be when dinosaurs ruled the earth. But for you, a long, long time ago might be last week. Well, it's context dependent as well, isn't it? So when did you last see John? Oh, it was a long, long time ago. Well, it wasn't in the time of the dinosaurs, was it? But <laughs> yeah, exactly. You use the same expression for a slightly different context. That's exactly right. And so it's been tricky doing this episode because we're like, <laughs> yeah. well, what can I cover and what can't I cover? So does I guess, this count? That's the question. Does it count? Exactly. It's kind of down to me to determine what I feel a long, long time ago is. So what I then looked at is where is a long, long time ago used? And it's most commonly used as one of the more sort of similar phrases that are used to start like a fable or a folktale, a fairy tale, a myth. Phrases like long ago, many moons ago, once upon a time, right? They're kind of amorphous things. You can't sort of pinpoint down on them. You can apply your own time period to it. So I'm going to start with a folktale. So folktales for the Bukunabi are like a means of transmitting collective wisdom and experience to the whole of the society. The Mose have a rich literature of folktales and storytelling. It forms like a large part of their traditional customs, and they have been shared for hundreds, if not thousands of years. They are storytellers who pass on the ancestral word verbally as a means for people to sort of learn important lessons about how to express themselves, the structure of their thoughts, the structure of the society itself, all of the key things that we all need from a young age. Mostly folktales, mostly rely on the use of animals. Yeah, it's very common, isn't it? It's almost borderline universal. Many of the stories feature a hyena called Umbakate and the cunning and skillful Umba Soamba, who is a hare. Uh, the stories describe the origin of things, the reason for various social taboos, the legitimacy of social structures. Yeah, there's usually a lesson involving don't ask too many questions or something similar. <laughs> exactly. Well, that's exactly right. And so I thought, I wonder if there is any stories about fear. How do you manage fear? What, what is fear? Or something along those lines. Now, there is a guy called Alain Sissau who went around Burkina Faso and he collected a lot of these oral stories into a book called Folk Tales from the Mose of Burkina Faso. And you can buy it online. Fully recommend it. There are some fantastic stories in there. So I'm going to read you now a story about fear from the Mose. I'm ready. I'm so, let me get comfortable. Okay. So this is a story called The Man and the Wild Animals. A long, long time ago, the wild animals decided to do everything they could to become more intelligent and stronger than man. They found it unfair that the bush was full of animals such as the elephant and the gazelle, and that despite their strength, none of them could defeat man, who remained the most powerful. They decided to send one of their own to where man lived to ask him a few questions. How is it that he has two feet, and yet he is more intelligent than those who have four feet? How did that come about? The lion was elected to go and question man. At the entrance to the village, he found a man who was looking for some termites for his chickens. He greeted him, and the latter responded in kind. He told him he had come on behalf of all the animals of the bush and that he wanted to see him. The man asked him the reason for his visit, and the lion told him that he had been sent to ask the following question. How is it that you have only two feet and yet you are the strongest? What's your secret? Now, the man let him finish and told him he had done well to come. However, you should have told me you were coming so that I could have gathered together all the intelligences and brought them here. At the moment, I have only one here with me, but that's all right. I will show it to you. You will come back later so that I can show you the rest. 
Satisfied, the lion thanked him and accepted his proposal. The man tore off several strips of banya bark, and afterwards they came upon a tree. The man asked the lion to lean up against it, and the lion willingly accepted. The man used the bark to tie the lion tightly to the tree. When he had finished, he said, They sent you to discover our secret, so that they themselves could become stronger than us. Yes, said the lion. I will show you just one intelligence, said the man. He picked up the hoe he had been using to dig in the termite hole and pretended to hit him. The lion cried out and the man said to him, Are you crying? Patience, it's coming. <laughs> I'm sorry, I like that. Are you crying? <laughs> he took his knife and pretended to slit the lion's throat. The lion yelled even louder. Listen, the man told him. If I did not fear God, you would be my prey. On the other hand, if I kill you, there will be no one to go and tell the other animals what man is. This is why you are still alive. However, I do have to make you suffer somewhat. That way, when you return to the bush, you will tell them to respect man. Because apart from God, man fears nothing. He took up his knife again, made a mark on the lion's back, and cut off his tail before setting him free. The lion ran off and went to find the other animals who were busy playing. When they saw him, they said, Here is the bold one! And they were all happy. When he was in the midst of them, the elephant approached. How did you manage to see him? What did he say? The lion remained silent. Then he told them, You ask me how it went. Well, didn't I leave here with a tail? <laughs> yep, for a solid point. And they replied, Yes. <laughs> he went on, Look at my back! Where is my tail? Listen, I am telling you now, if you see man walking, run until your claws are gone, because he is not someone to be trifled with. Today, if he had wanted to, I'd be done for, that's for sure. Man is a jerk, but Lion's a bit of a dummy. He could have said, I'm not going to be tied to this tree as well. <laughs> but I guess he went in search of intelligence, so he knew that. <laughs> there are a lot of stories where people get tied to trees and bad things happen to them, and they seemingly <laughs> willingly get tied to trees. So I don't know if that's part of the customs of the, the, the Bukhanabi, but yeah, people just like being tied to trees, I wow, guess. Wow, man's kind of a jerk. Pretty scary, right? Yeah. Yeah. So I think there's a lesson we can learn Maybe there. the most frightening animal of all is man. <laughs> <laughs> Let's talk about crocodiles. Talking of fear, I have a healthy fear of the crocodile. If you lived in Burkina Faso, perhaps you wouldn't. That seems like I'd be more likely to be afraid, but carry on. <laughs> Explain yourself. Okay, so look, of all the wild animals in Burkina Faso, the one that plays the most important part in the life of the Mose is the crocodile. Crocodiles, as we know, they're very dangerous. Over 500 people are killed in Africa every year by crocodiles. But the Mose have a unique relationship with the crocodiles, which goes back centuries. So the story goes, a long, long time ago, during a period of severe drought, locals believed that a crocodile appeared and led local women to a source of fresh water. A thanksgiving was held by the grateful villagers and the reptiles have been revered ever since. Crocodiles are now allowed to wander into villages looking for places to lay their eggs. And not only that, the locals also then protect the nests from predators. Local boys swim in the lakes and rivers, despite them being literally infested with crocodiles, although they are told to avoid swimming too soon after the babies hatch because the mothers can be, in quotes, very protective. <laughs> <laughs> Dead crocodiles are given a burial service. Uh, they're often buried in coffins in small unmarked cemeteries. Wow. Yeah. The people of Bazule, 
they centre their faith around these large male crocodiles, which they know as the old man of the lake. Oh, that's a great. I mean, that's appropriate. Imagine the old man of the lake, this little log-like creature drifting along. Not a little one. These are the big ones. And and uh, yeah, today, the old man of the lake is believed to be over 110 years old, which is a baby considering that his predecessor, who died more than a decade ago, was said to have lived even longer, about 136 years. Wow. And beyond that, some females are said to live up to 150 years. So many generations have sort of looked after these crocodiles. Oh, they get that leathery skin. It's all the age. Yeah, it's true. (laughs) And in an annual ceremony known as Kum Lakre, village elders make offerings of sheep, goats, and even small donkeys to the old man of the lake. And chickens are sacrificed on a sort of more regular basis in thanks, you know, for their protection. But also, since 1960, in thanks for providing a steady stream of tourists who come along and watch. Nice. The the chicken is always the one that that gets it, isn't it? (laughs) And you never hear about the culture that reveres the chicken. The chicken is always being sacrificed to something else. (laughs) Poor old chicken. I do feel bad for them. Hello, Vatican City. The Pope speaking. Pope, it's the Lord. Oh, hello, Lord. What the hell is going on down there? I'm sorry? I'm inundated with chickens up here. Chickens, Lord? Yes, chickens, fowl, poultry, and bloody besieged by the beaky bastards. Ah, it looks like we've had a mix-up again, sir. The chickens aren't for you, Lord. They've been sacrificed to the Birkinabe god, and they should have gone to him. Well, what are you going to do about it? I can't bloody think up here. I've got more birds than Colonel Bloody Sanders. It's bad enough when the angels are shedding and now there's feathers everywhere. Oh, I am sorry about that, Lord. We'll send a thousand missionaries to Africa immediately. Good. And what about these chickens? Well, I could have a word with him down below, sir. He does put on an excellent barbecue. Fine. Do something about these mix-ups. I mean, I wouldn't mind, but it's always bloody chickens. I mean, some people sacrifice virgins, you know. Indeed, Lord. Anyway, bye. Crocodiles may not be feared by the Bukanabi, but that doesn't mean that the local people aren't afraid of what lurks in the water, Pete. But not the crocodiles. But not the crocodiles. I'd start with the crocodiles. I think they're wrong. I've worked out. (laughs) I'm willing to explain to them how wrong they are, but nevertheless, carry on. Okay, well, look, during the wet season, uh, when the rivers and the streams are full of water, the Bukanabi do exhibit plenty of aqua agrizophobia, which is a fear of water-based wild animals. And I'm going to tell you about a couple of those. So the first one. Locals often go down to their watering holes, right? They need the water and they should rightly be afraid of bumping into the second most dangerous animal in Africa. Do you know what that is? I'm going to guess. Go on. I think we've uh, discussed this before. I think it might be a hippo. That's exactly right. A hippopotamus. Notoriously aggressive. Hippos can weigh up to 2,750 kilos. That's four tons or six grand pianos. I would fear a fleet of grand pianos coming at me in the water. Yes. (laughs) They reach speeds of up to 25 kilometers an hour. 16 miles per hour, which is faster than an average human can run, about 13 miles per hour. So three miles per hour faster than you. Because that's the thing that gets you. You think, ah, you're a big fat thing and I can outrun you. No. No, they do not. They run much, much faster. And they have tusks at the front of their mouths that can grow over a foot in length. Today in Burkina Faso, there are about 1,500 hippos, but that's a tiny number compared to however many lived there a long, long time ago. And that's because they are currently recovering from near extinction several decades ago when their hunting ban was put in place in 1991. 
Oh, 91. That's recent. There was only 150 of them in the 1970s. Crikey. Yeah. But yes, so a long, long time ago, there were a huge number of hippos in Burkina Faso, and they would have literally numbered in the tens of thousands. So you couldn't have gone anywhere without stumbling into one. And they genuinely were a menace to the, the rural communities then. The hippos would eat the grass where they farmed, which would mean encountering and sort of killing the farmers that accidentally startled them. They lived in the water where people bathed and fished and would often protect their territory by biting canoes in half and then just killing the fishermen inside. In fact, there was only one small group of people who weren't afraid of hippos, and they were known as the fearless fishermen. <laughs> yeah, and these were men who would risk their lives by using the hippos to their advantage. So they would head out in their canoes and cast their nets in among the hippos, hoping to catch fish which were attracted by the hippo dung. That is a bold move. That hence the name the fearless fisherman. Yeah. <laughs> But yeah, perhaps in part due to the rising numbers of hippos and the threat that they genuinely make, as of 2022, the Burkina Faso government has made hippo hunting legal again. Are there any fearless fishermen left? Don't know. I don't know what the odds are of how long you survive being a uh, fearless fisherman. Especially a novice one. Your first go out. <laughs> That's not something I want to try. <laughs> All right, next up, in terms of scary water-based things, let's talk about the black fly. That sounds horrible already. Oh, <laughs> yes. Um, so... <laughs> <laughs> Right. So for as long as humans have been in Burkina Faso, they've needed water, right? So they've based their villages and settlements around water sources. But they're not the only ones to have done that. The simulium is a small black fly that breeds in fast-flowing, well-oxygenated waters, and it feeds on blood, frequently using the people of Burkina Faso as its food source. Now, the reason why the black fly is feared is not just because it bites, but because of a thing called onchocerciasis. Oh. And onchocerciasis is caused by the bite of this fly. So, active during the day, when a black fly sucks blood from a human, it injects larvae into the host. Oh! Yeah. Now, over one or two years, the larvae grow into like a thread-like worm. Okay. Which, when mature, then produces new larvae of its own. Up to 2,000 every day. Oh, that's gross. All of those then migrate throughout the rest of the host body. So the mature worm can continue to produce 2,000 larvae every day for its entire life, which can be up to 10 years. So when an uninfected black fly then sucks the blood of an infected person, it takes up the larvae and the cycle continues. Right. Now, the adult worms don't really cause much of an issue, except for what's called like a nodule-like formation on the skin. But it's, the, it's not the worm, it's the larvae migrating throughout the body, which is where the most horrifying symptoms occur. So you're going to get severe itching, rashes depigmentation of the skin, especially in the lower limbs, which causes a thing called leopard skin. And also, and this one I don't like, is the destruction of skin elasticity. So you end up with loose hanging folds of skin called hanging groin. Oh, Oh no, I don't like that. And you've still got the bugs inside you. Oh, well, right. This yeah. is nasty. Yeah. But the most devastating effect happens when the larvae enters the eye, because this leads to visual impairment and eventually blindness. Now, infection is obviously highest in areas near rivers, and so the name given to those suffering from the effects of black fly is river blindness. 
Now, in the 1970s, one village named Saint-Pierre in Burkina Faso was found to be just several hundred metres from a breeding ground for black flies, and 90% of the population showed symptoms. Oh, man. 30% exhibiting severe symptoms. Today, a small dose of diethylcarbamazine, or ivermectin, which you might be familiar ah, with yes. from the COVID days, well, that kills the larvae, but it doesn't get rid you of... You still them. live near the river and it's packed with black flies. True. That just kills the larvae, though. It doesn't kill the actual worms, and of course the worms are still producing more larvae. So, to get rid of it completely, you have to keep doing a treatment, repeat it every 6 to 12 months for up to 10 years oh my until the adult worms die of old age. Flipping egg. Who, the World Health Organization have established a program to eliminate the black fly completely, and they're spraying river systems in West Africa. It's estimated that since the initiation of that program in the 1970s, nearly half a million cases of blindness have been prevented. Wow. Today, it's estimated that 17 million people are infected in Africa, and that is with sort of limited access to modern medicine. But in the past, that number was much, much higher. In the 70s, it was 40 million, and a long, long time ago, it would have been much more than that. Wow, that's horrifying. Thanks, Ryan. You thought that was terrifying. I did. <laughs> All right, let me tell you about Heterobrachus by Dorsalus. So there is one more animal that lives deep in the heart of Burkina Faso's waters that has struck fear into the hearts of local people for a long, long time. Now, near the small mud brick village of Koro, there is a mysterious place called Dafara. Now, Dafara is an anomaly. In a flat landscape, there is this huge 100-metre-wide hole that just looks like it appears out of nowhere. It looks as if the earth has just collapsed. Road to hell, clearly. Exactly. And when missionaries first arrived, they called Dafara the rocks because the sharp rock cliffs that just sort of fall down to a bottom of a ravine, and at the centre of that is this deep water abyss about the size of an Olympic swimming pool. If you travel down to the bottom of the ravine, the first thing you're going to notice is the smell. It is this dank, putrid odour of blood and bile and rotting gore, the odour of death. And the entire floor is covered in this dark, thick blood. Sounds like I'm making this up. It really does. Yeah. But blood and flesh and bones, they're all from animals which have been brought there to be sacrificed. Animals have been slaughtered to appease a fertility god that dwells in the recesses of that dark water. Now, how deep the water is, no one knows. And what's in this small lake, far from any sort of running water or anything, is also completely unknown. But it is real... I don't like it at all. It terrifies me that this thing exists. So what we do know is that it is a flesh-eating creature of massive proportions. And the villagers of Koro come down to the water and they pray to the creature, hoping that its magic can help cure infertile women. They offer up whatever they've got. And the legend of Defara states that you cannot go into the water else the god will eat you alive. I mean, I wouldn't need much. This is a gore pit from what you just described. <laughs> wouldn't need a sign for most people you would hope, wouldn't you? Yeah. They say that a long, long time ago, at the time of the first Western explorers, one man scoffed at them and went, whatever. And he dove off the cliff and down into this milky water of the pool. And he never surfaced. <sighs> Days later, they found his bones on the shore. Now, in 1986, a missionary visited the site and he witnessed the locals offering meat to the creature. And almost immediately, as the flesh hits the water, a large hump broke the surface. He says that the creature's skin was smooth and black and didn't have a dorsal fin. 
There were no eyes or mouth, just a large hump. The missionary estimated it to be the size of a large couch, about seven feet long. And after it had eaten, the black body submerged and was not seen again. Now, the locals believe it to be some kind of fish, but unlike anything they've seen anywhere else. Uh, But the question is, if it is a fish, how did it get there, right? The, The nearest river is over 50 miles away. So what kind of creature could it possibly be, right? What, what, could, what could survive there? Now, could it be a supernatural being that offers fertility <laughs> as a reward for being well-fed? Probably. That seems like the go-to... <laughs> un- well, that's what the people of Koro believe. Or is it some sort of local creature that for some reason has become trapped in this remote hole in the ground and has been able to spawn a population big enough that it can survive for generations? No one knows. But the only animal that can grow to even close that size is the African catfish, the Heterobrachus bidorsalus. Now, that's common in parts of the upper Volta River, and they can grow to about one and a half metres in length. But that is far short of the creature of the far. Eel. <laughs> you think it's an eel? Is that what you think it is? I'm, I'm back in eel all the way here. <laughs> Giant eel. That's I a, think that's a stupid idea. There's an underground watery connection that it allows it to go in and out. Oh, you think so? Yeah, it's underground. Yeah. Okay, that's kind of cool. I mean, I have nothing to suggest that. That's based on just what I feel. So it's an underground sneaky eel. Sneaky eel. Sneal. <laughs> <laughs> Come in. Hello. Um, sorry, is this the right place for the fertility, Doctor? Oh, absolutely. Come in, come in. Oh, thank you. Have a seat. Welcome to Defara Fertility Clinic, where your hopes become reality. Oh, thank you. Um, th- I mean, that this is really kind of a last chance for us for having a child. Well, not to worry. We do have an excellent success rate. Well, that's great to hear. Uh, I mean, I must admit, we have had our concerns and, you know, we are a bit nervous about this. Oh, well, you really shouldn't be. Look, why don't we get started and we'll have a short orientation video and that should put your mind at rest. Not since the beginning of time has the world known terror like this. Creature from the Defaro Hole. Science couldn't explain it, but it was alive in the deep, deep waters of the Defaro Hole. A throwback to a creature that existed a hundred million years ago. A woman's beauty, the bait that brought it out of its lair. See fertility enhancements never dreamed of before. Creature from the Defaro Hole. Okay, well that sounds great. Uh, where do we sign? So let's talk about religion. I Well, yes, fear, I suppose. Religion is bound to come into it eventually. That's right. Specifically, the fear of God. I have plenty of that. We've all heard the phrase fear of God. And when we say fear of God, we're not actually talking about fire and brimstone and eternal damnation. Aren't we? I am. Well, that's what I thought fear of God was. But it turns out that's actually not what it is. When we talk about fear of God, we're actually talking about fear in the sense of reverence and worship, thankfulness and love. And yeah, a little bit of the fire and brimstone. (laughs) stuff. Certainly this is true in the Christian faith. But if you don't believe me, ask Pope Francis, who said, the fear of the Lord doesn't mean being afraid of God. Since we know that God is our father that always loves and forgives us, it is not servile fear, but rather a joyful awareness of God's grandeur and a grateful realisation that only in him do our hearts find true peace. 
Grateful fear. I've never thought of that before. And in this respect, we find that the Mose, they kind of tread a similar path. So the religion of the Mose has three component parts. There is an all-powerful creator, a god called Wende, who is responsible for all things in life, fate, good, and evil. Second, there are fertility spirits of the rain and of earth, and they govern the success or failure of soil and crops. And then there are the ancestors, relatives who died a long, long time ago, but continue to sort of hang around in the earthly realm as a ghostly spirit. And it's the Mose ancestors with whom the most crucial role is played with regards to their sort of day-to-day spiritual ways of life. In fact, of all the ceremonies which the Mose perform throughout the year, the majority are in honour of their ancestors. Each household has a shrine to its ancestors, an upside-down pottery bowl with sort of sacred plants and objects under it, which they honour with offerings at the time of Harvest Festival. They also make sacrifices at the graves of male ancestors. Wende is basically seen as being too important for the day-to-day management of everyday people. So it's kind of not interested in what man's doing. So that's not wildly different from the Catholic intercession by Mary and the saints rather than direct appeal to God, is it? That's exactly right. I was just going to say that very same thing. It's, there's a similar sort of theme of don't go directly to God, you go to your saints first. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, so instead of sort of a divine guidance, it is the Mose ancestors which are sort of tasked with watching over the behaviour of the people, protecting them and preserving the group's values. And now sometimes this means rewarding good behaviour, sometimes this means dealing out punishment to the ill-behaved. In fact, they can be so fearful of their ancestors' wrath that they would rather take God's name in vain, ah, for God's sake, than swear in the name of a dead father or the name of a fertility spirit. Ah, right, well, he's your team leader, really, rather than the CEO. CEO's not bothered. (laughs) (laughs) Thus, the traditional Mose fear his ancestors more than his God. Ah. Now, talking of the Mose community and of fear, it's probably worth talking about ironwork. Is it? Yeah, well, we mentioned it, right? We mentioned about the Iron Age. And they we were talked about early developers of iron in that region, weren't they, from our previous podcasts? Early developers. Exactly, exactly right. And uh, a number of archaeological studies have been conducted in Burkina Faso on a place called Kirikongo, near the Black Volta River. Uh, now, Kirikongo was an Iron Age settlement. It was occupied for about 1,600 years, from 100 AD to the 18th century. And it was designed for producing ironwork. Now, the most important people in Kirikongo in an iron-producing village, likely to be the smelters and the ironsmiths, right? Now, the, the reason they were important is obviously because they provided like the tools and the weapons that were needed by the village itself. But they were seen as being experts who were essentially turning rock into metal. And that was treated with suspicion. They were believed to be supernatural. It's, it's a certain magical aspect to it, isn't there? This it's transformation, kind of, transmutation. Absolutely. turning one thing into another. And to the Mose, the earth is the source of fertility. And to remove some of the earth and burn it and then beat it, it was considered supernaturally dangerous, right? You were really chancing your luck by doing this. And so all the iron workers originated only from one clan and they were kept at a distance from the rest of the community. So they were kept outside of the village at arm's length. We, we need you. Don't go too but far. over there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And today, the Mosi continue to work iron, but they don't smelt from ore anymore. Basically, they import and recycle iron. Wow. Well, how about that? Now they're recycling. That's a transformation. I mean, there's a metaphor in there, isn't there, from the extraction of material from the earth to the reclaiming of previously extracted goods. It's a positive message, I'd say. I think so, too. 
And finally, Pete, a long, long time ago, around 440 million years ago. Well, that definitely qualifies as a long, long time ago. (laughs) I think no quibbles on that one. (laughs) In a galaxy far, far away, something made of rock exploded and scattered its remnants into deep space. Now, at 10 a.m. on August 14th, 1962, a piece of that rock shrieked through the Earth's atmosphere at about 125,000 miles per hour and fell down towards Kamanjari province in Burkina Faso. Now, residents of the village of Bogu reported hearing a noise similar to an airplane flying at like a high altitude, and then seconds later, a second noise which was more muffled, and then gradually becoming shrill like a rocket. About the time the sound reached its maximum, a huge flash was seen, a deep boom, and finally a massive explosion. The villagers were terrified, they hid indoors, and only next day did they brave leaving their huts. They informed the authorities about what they had seen and what they had heard. The authorities went out and they found a crater. Relatively small, considering the noise and uh, the the drama that accompanied it. But it was about 30 centimetres in radius, about the size of a, a ruler. Oh, really? Yeah, and about 50 centimetres deep. And inside the crater was a lump of smouldering rock. The Bogu meteorite. Now, the arrival of this mysterious rock caused a lot of curiosity in the Mose, but fear and superstition too. They are naturally terrifying phenomena. They're so Absolutely. baffling and random. And the noise that it makes as well when it when it hits the ground. In the weeks that followed, this meteorite, which weighed around 19 pounds, it was packaged up and it was shipped to Washington in the United States. In Washington... Researchers at Brookhaven National Laboratory examined the meteorite. They cut it in half and determined that the meteorite was composed mostly of iron. They found some crystals which indicated that it was originally part of a much larger body, perhaps around 100 kilometres in length. And they also detected the presence of a rare iron mineral called woosite, which had never been found on a meteorite before, and which they believed had formed on the surface of the rock during the last few seconds as it plunged through the atmosphere. The tests also showed that the rock was exposed to cosmic radiation, so basically it had been travelling through space for at least half a billion years. And today, the Bogu meteorite is one of only 50 meteorites which have been witnessed falling to the Earth in the past 350 years. Wow. I I think my only disappointment is that was so much of a superhero origin story. I was waiting for a tiny but strangely powerful creature to emerge from the crater. That would be amazing, wouldn't it? Yeah. So there you go, Peter. That is fear in Burkina Faso a long, long time ago. Well, I have no fear that you are going to have trouble with Paul Dursley because you hit the brief perfectly, in my opinion. <laughs> we, we shall see, won't we? The verdict, <laughs> is, always the verdict is never a safe place for me. <laughs> now, I thought that was very interesting. You covered a range of interesting things. You managed the long, long time ago challenge, which it's one of those ones that it feels like a gift at first because you think, oh, I can do anything. But you still have to make it plausibly a long, long time ago. So I thought you rose to that challenge rather well. And I enjoyed it. I thought it was interesting, full of fascinating facts. Well, thank you very much, Peter. I much appreciate it. <laughs> So, Ryan, that was terrific, and I only hope that I can match up to it for the next episode. But what's that going to be about? Well, who knows yet? There's only one thing that can tell us. Is it the Dursolator? It is the Dursolator. Wheel it out. All right, here it comes. All right, I'm going to switch it on. Oh, I love that noise. (laughs) Okay, you ready? I'm ready. All right, take a deep breath, because (gasps) here we go. Your place is... Ethiopia. Ooh. Okay. okay. Yeah. Back, back in Africa. Yeah. And uh, your time period is 
So it's the early modern era. That's 1450 to 1750. Okay, I'm glad you gave me the dates because I do not know what the early modern era is. <laughs> yeah. All right, okay. 1450 to 1750. And then the topic. I guess this is where it all kicks in, isn't it? <laughs> if it's electronics, I'm in trouble. <laughs> <laughs> okay, and the topic is... Woodwork. Woodwork. Woodwork in Ethiopia during the early modern era. That's 1450 to 1750. How do you feeling about that? First thoughts? I feel like woodwork feels like a get out of uh, trouble topic. I feel like there was bound to have been wood being worked in some way. Yeah. Even, wait wait even till there were no trees in Ethiopia <laughs> during that time period. Yes. During the treeless age, as they know it, we'll find out. <laughs> Goodness me. No, that sounds like something I could do, hopefully can do something with, but you never know, do you? Yeah, you never know. You might have to branch out and find something else interesting. <laughs> there you go. That's it. I'm looking forward to it. I think I am. So I'll keep you posted. All right. Okay, so that's the show for this week. Thank you very much for listening. And if you'd like to get in touch about any of the things we've talked about on the show or just say hi, reach out to us through the website, hhepodcast.com or email Pete and Ryan at hhepodcast.com. Yeah, we'd love to hear from you. And you never know, you might end up featured on a future show. And if you're on TikTok, Instagram, Facebook or Twitter, you can find us at hhepodcast. And if you subscribe to those, you're going to get an alert every time we post one of our little one minute animated HHE bites. We will, of course, be back again soon with... The Verdict. But until then, a huge thanks to Ryan. Thank you, Peter. And that's it. I guess all that's left to say is... You've been listening to... History Happened Everywhere. Hey, Ryan. Oh, hey, Pete. What's that? What are you drinking? Oh, well, this, it's a beer I've invented for the episode. I call it Fear Beer. Fear Beer? Interesting. What, what is it then? Well, you take malts, hops, sugar and barley and you mix it all up with the tears of a frightened child. What? Yeah, the tears of a frightened child. Oh, right. Well, that's weird. Yeah, tastes nice though. Here, look, have a can. Mm, yeah, that is pretty good, actually. Thanks. So what's the alcohol content? Oh, no, no, there's no alcohol. Well, if there's no alcohol, then it's not a real beer, then, is it? No. No, that's the point. It's a faux beer. Ryan. Yeah? Did you do this whole thing for that pun? Yes. Fair enough. Do you want to go for a pint? real one? Yeah, okay. So, where did you get the tears of a frightened child from? Oh, Betsy. Bada 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 bada